With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. To some, a baby's babbling doesn't mean much, but it does. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Every year, millions of Americans are exposed to a contagious virus. What is this virus? It's stigma. Stigma promotes an environment of shame, fear, and silence which prevents millions of people from seeking help. But there's good news. The National Alliance on Mental Illness believes stigma towards mental illness is 100% curable. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to curestigma.org and get tested for stigma. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, you can check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram. Lots of cool pictures there, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email me, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. Well, I have a very talented young man that's going to be on the show right now. I believe this is him on the call. Uh, he is an author, Kane Prize winner for African Writing. Uh, Rhodes Scholar, and he has a a debut novel out called A Particular Kind of Black Man. Let's see if this is him. I think it is. Good morning, Tope. Hey. Can you hear me? How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Um, You sound a little far away. Are you on a... Um, Can you hear me now? I'm on my phone. Yes, I can. Can you hear me now? Is this better? Yes. That's a little okay. better. So we, we want to get everything you have to say because I think you have a lot to say based on your writings. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I, um, hopefully this is better. I'm right next to my phone now. So. Yes. So I was reading okay. the book. You have a lot of juicy stuff in there. I mean, you're talking about immigration. You're talking about mental health. You're talking about, you know, what it is to love and need to be loved. You're talking about, you know, assimilating all these different issues. Um, I also read one of your essays um, against accessibility, and I feel like somehow that essay almost connected me to your book because um, in that you were discussing, you know, there's only, there had been only one type of icon for African writers, uh, you know, Chinua Achebe, and then now we have Adiche, 
But I think you yeah. might be the next icon. Maybe you, are you the next icon for African writing? Uh, well, I, I, I hope so. That's the goal. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity to appear on the show. I really appreciate it. It's a privilege. Um, and second of all, you're the first person, and I, you know, have the pleasure of speaking to a few people about the book. And you're the first person to draw a link between that essay and my book. And so I'm so very glad that you read it. You know, I, I published that essay back in 2016, and I published it because I was getting to a place where my novel was about to be done, um, and I kind of anticipated that there would be some friction or, or maybe some people wouldn't get what I was trying to do with my novel. And so I entitled the essay Against Acceptability because part of the point I was trying to make was to say that my book wouldn't be, I wasn't putting a book out into the world that was meant to placate and edify people. I was putting a book out into the world that was a visceral, honest depiction of real life. And my thesis was that the publishing world, because it is, you know, incredibly white, you know, most of the editors are white, most of the publishers are white, Mm. Most of the staffers and publishing houses are white. They've come to expect a certain kind of fiction from people who share a cultural, cultural heritage with them. And I was saying that I wasn't going to write that kind of fiction. Here's why I'm not going to write that kind of fiction. So for me, it was incredibly important for me to kind of lay down the marker and say, here's the kind of book that I want to write, and here's why I want to write that book. Mm. And so that's, that's why I wrote that essay. And I'm really, really glad that you had a chance to read it. And I'm additionally glad that you connected it to my book. Yeah. I think it's important um, for that. And just you have other things that you've written um, as well. But I, that really, once I read that one, I was like, hmm, okay, now I see. You know, for example, just to talking about mental health issues. I mean, that is something that, you know, in the past had not, would be like a, you know, something you wouldn't talk about uh, in, in in African writing, in American writing. We talk about, you know, oh, this mental health thing. But for African-American culture, you know, yeah. the talking about mental health is also still, you know, don't don't talk about that. We don't want to, nobody, no, no, don't, but we don't want to talk about that too much. You know what I'm saying? So for you to talk yeah. about, um, you know, the situation with the mother character uh, and and being African and, and her mental health issues, that was brave. Do you Were you scared when you decided to write that? How did you think that was going to be yeah. received? I mean, yes, I did experience some nervousness. Probably because, you know, my, my fam, Isaac Jones, uh, you know, the impact of mental illness, uh, right? the impact of somebody who's struggling with their mental illness is perhaps a bit of a that. And, you know, I'm mm-hmm. situated in two cultures. You know, my, my parents are from Nigeria. I was born and raised in the United States, and so I am an African-American as well. So it's like And so I'm familiar with... Wait, you're falling away. You're falling away, Tope. I'm sorry. I think you're, okay. I can't hear you very well. Okay, can you, can you can you hear me now? Yeah, that's better. Hello. Okay. Yep, that's. I was saying that's that. Good. That's great. Cool. Uh, I was saying that just by virtue of my circumstance and my birth, you know, I'm I'm an African American and I'm situated in that culture, and so I'm also aware of the taboo in that culture as well, in our culture of um, you know, of mental health and and how for centuries really people have talked around what you know what might be happening and certainly from my parents perspective you know something like that if somebody's experiencing a mental health uh, some kind of break or schizophrenia 
you know, the immediate kind of response is to say, well, it's not that, it's something else, or is to try to pray it away, you know? And um, I think that happens in, in African-American culture as well. And so, yeah, I, I was nervous about the prospect of just talking about it honestly, directly, and to the point, and also to talk about how it impacts an entire family and an entire community as well. And I recognize that some people might read it and say, you know, like, I don't want that, or that's, you know, not something that should be exposed to light. But it was my belief that if you're, trying to write a book that might have some impact and resonate with folks that you have to go to those places that people might be afraid to go to. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't, as an artist, I would consider, let's say you're an artist and you go on that limb, you know, you, you expose things that people don't want to talk about or may not want to see. Um, So I just recently had, I remember um, Fatimata, uh, She's a singer. She's a Malian singer, and she did a song about yeah. uh, female genital mutilation. She was the first mm. to ever do that. Nobody was talking about that. Yeah. And she was like, but that is yeah. like happening to 90% of the women in that country. Why are we not talking about it, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah. And she's, she's young, you know, she's, she's around your age. And so I think the youth now are going to the next level. The youth artists are taking the art um, in all parts of the diaspora to another level, you know? Yeah. Um, well, that's really so great to hear about that. Being, and I think we have a responsibility to tell our stories, right? To just kind of be honest about where we come from. So. Right. Yes, definitely. I mean, but again, that was yeah. not the case in the past. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the past, you yeah. could not, to be successful, like even your essay says, you're kind of conforming to this one yeah. mold and, you know, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, in order to go, you know, get that deal um, to be recognized, yeah. to get signed, you know, Um yeah. But why are you a writer? I mean, you could have done That's something That's a great question. Else. I mean, you have <laughs> degrees and like, how many degrees do you have? You have two master's degrees <laughs> when you yeah. went to the University yeah. of Oxford. So now you became a writer? Is that going to make any money? Yeah. How are you going to take care of kids? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make money. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's so... <laughs> um, I, I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't shake it. I had to do it. You know, um, I went to grad school at Oxford, as you mentioned, and I definitely had this pathway in mind for myself. You know, when I went to Oxford, I was dedicated to uh, doing as well as I could there and then getting, you know, uh, a law degree and then clerking for a Supreme Court justice. I had everything lined out, you know, and I get to Oxford and I start reading because what had happened before going to Oxford is that for a time period, I was so addicted to literature that I placed it aside because I was convinced that reading so many books was preventing me from doing as well in school as I wanted to do. And so one of the first things I did once I was fortunate enough to win a Rhodes Scholarship was that I started reading every novel that I could. Uh, And so by the time I get to my second year at Oxford, I I began to recognize that writing and literature uh, was an incredibly important part of my life, and it was something that I couldn't shake. And so I made a kind of bargain with myself. I said, you know, I'm going to get a job, you know, a regular job, and I'll write on the side. And I'll ask whoever I'm, I'm speaking with, my boss, my future boss, a recruiter, I'll tell them that I do aspire to be a writer and I'm going to spend some time at whatever job I'm doing, you know, kind of trying to write fiction. And so I was in an interview process for Google at that point. And it's a really intense interview process. For my interview process, I had seven interviews on two continents, and I was fortunate enough to get a job at Google. And I told my, my boss that, you know, I would really appreciate it if he gave me some time to write. And she said, I can do more than that. I can give you a book budget every month. Oh, my yeah. gosh. What? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Um, See, this is something interesting. Let me just say this. You, yeah. you, and I say you meaning people, ask for what you want, ask for what you need, and the universe seems to meet you. Oh, absolutely. You have to. <laughs> you know, that's been my experience. You, know, you can't be shy or amazing. bashful about that. You just have to assert who no. you are. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I was fortunate in that my boss said, not only will we do that and, you know, you can schedule an hour, a couple hours a day to go off into the conference room and write, but I'll give you a book budget. And so I got, you know, like 200 pounds uh, a month uh, to get, because I was based in the UK, uh, to, to get yeah. uh, books. And so I did that for a year and a half. And the thing I discovered was that, like, that hour wasn't enough. Um, and I was, and, and so this is around 2008. This is right before the crisis. And so I got this bonus from work, and it was more money than I'd seen before. And I thought, this is a sign from the universe that I need to kind of step away. And so I did. And two months after I left my job, the financial crisis hit, and it didn't work again for a year and a half. That was by far the most difficult period of my life because I had kind of created this life where I you know, wanted that to be impossible. I had done well in school, and I was always hoping for um, – you know, this, I, I had believed that I'd always be employable, that I'd always have a job and that, mm -hmm. um, that that would never happen. And here I am, you know, sort of nine months into my unemployment phase and I don't have anything going for me. And so at that point I decided I would dedicate everything I had to becoming a great writer. And so I read everything I lived, I live in DC. And so I went to every museum I could. I was, I got all their programs whenever there was an artist or a, an author or a poet coming in, I'd, I'd sit and listen to what they had to say. I spent hours at the museum walking around, taking in all the exhibits. And I did this for mm -hmm. a year and a half. And so by the time I was employed again, I had this kind of context that I could pull from and these strategies that I could utilize in trying to create my art. Um, and so that's a long story. To, to kind of fast forward to the present day, um, I do have a job now. I work at a place called the Local Initiative Support Corporation, which is the largest or one of the largest community development financial institutions in the country. So it's kind of, it's, we provide funding for housing and schools, and we work on police community relationships. We really have a really wide portfolio, uh, and I'm a vice president okay. there, and I'm, I'm a vice president of content and storytelling at this place. And so this is a job that, you know, I wanted to create a job for myself where I could, you know, I'd spent a lot a long time working on policy issues in D.C., and I wanted to kind of integrate that with my abiding interest in literature. And so my job is to go around the country and capture stories about the work that we do around the country. Uh, so that's my day job, well, and at night great. I write fiction. That sounds great. Yeah. So, Sophie, let me just yeah. ask you, because I heard somewhere, yeah. or I think I read somewhere, you wanted to be part of the Harlem Boys Choir. Uh, well, you true? did your deep research. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, yeah, no, no. I, yeah. I can't come on here. You're a Rhodes Scholar. I can't. You, look, I can't look. That's the off. That's the voice choir thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, um, I grew up singing, and singing is very important to me. And I entered all these vocal competitions throughout my sort of middle school and high school years, and and did well in those competitions. But when I was younger, uh, I grew up in Utah, and, um, and the Harlem Boys Choir, I was obsessed with a couple things. The Harlem Boys Choir, because, you know, it's a bunch of, like, black boys on television who seemed to be everywhere all the time, and they were singing, and they were admired for, admired for their singing. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, it would be incredible to be part of that group, you know, because I sing as well, but I'm always the only black kid who's singing. And so I just thought that would be an incredible experience. And and my dad was obsessed with Booker T. Washington. And so when I was like, I think seven or eight, I set off for 
a brochure from Tuskegee Institute because uh, he made made me read and and watch all these movies about Booker T. Washington, and so I thought that I'd end up there. I ended up at Morehouse, um, as it happened, but um, those were my two obsessions when I was was younger. Talking about your father, there's a lot of correlations in the book between your life and the and the characters in the book, um, yep. and there's there's also fiction, you know. Um, and the thing is, yep. that's cool is that we as the audience, unless somebody really knows you, knows you, we're like, well, which part is the fiction part? Which is the you know not yeah. so that's one thing. But one of the things I think might be similar is um, you were talking about um, in the book the the parents being very disciplinarians, um, not letting them you know watch TV and all these things. Yeah. And I read somewhere in your real life, you had to have like a court in order to watch Star Trek with your real father. Yes. Talk, talk to the audience yes. about this. You, you had to like create this whole thing in order for for you to be able to watch Star Trek. Yeah. My dad was really serious about um, monitoring our, our television and, and he was very strict about how much TV we could watch. So we could generally watch an hour of TV a day at most and half an hour of that had to be the news, the national news. Um, and then we could watch like a sitcom or something, but he had to watch with us. And if there was anything in the sitcom he didn't like, then he'd send us to our room. And so I think I must've been in the third or fourth grade and Star Trek, the next generation was on the air. And I was reading, I was reading a lot of Star Trek books because I read, I read so much when I was young and my dad, what he would often do is that he would drop my brother and me off at the library uh, before going to work, let's say on the weekend, and then he'd pick us up. And so I was constantly at the library. I read everything that I could there. And I started reading these Star Trek books. And I thought, like, there's actually, like, you know, Star Trek television program that I want to watch. And my dad said, under no circumstances can you watch this because I don't see the point of this because it's just, you know, like people <laughs> in spacesuits or, you know, like right. play acting. I don't see the point of it. And, I, and so we kind of went back and forth. And my dad said, you know, here's what I'll do. You know, I'm going to, his father was a judge, so he was obsessed with the idea of being a judge. He said, I'm going to put on a robe and I'll allow you to present a case for why it makes sense. And and then I'll rule accordingly. And so I spent, you know, like three or four days, like writing up this meticulous case about Star Trek, about how (laughs) many people have been positively influenced by Star Trek, um, about the fact that it, you know, kind of celebrated, uh, you know, sort of cohesion and collaboration and, you know, so I wrote everything down and I kind of wore my suit and I presented it to him and my, my siblings were the witnesses and my dad listened to my case and then he said, okay, I'll, I'll think about it. And two days later, he put the robe back on and said, I have ruled in your favor. And so that was something he started doing, you know, to kind of, I guess, and, you know, looking back, it was a really great strategy because I had to learn how to think on my feet and, and build a case and come up with compelling arguments. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't simply a matter of I want to watch something just because I want to watch something. I had to like do my research about why whatever I wanted to watch would be good for me and good for my younger siblings as well. So, uh, it's that, funny. I had a similar type character. of experience. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he sounds like it. Well, my parents were similar in terms of like the whole TV thing, reading. Like if you come to my house now, I have like at least six bookshelves of books. People come in and like, is this a freaking library or what? But uh, I, I was yeah. thinking in terms of the reading aspect, and it's like normal to me to read. But there are a lot of people that don't read in the world, you know, yeah. and um, yeah. which I find, you know, because that's not yeah. how I was raised. Um, one of the things about your book that you talk about is, you know, this immigrate, immigrant experience. But the interesting thing, and again, going back to your essay, almost connecting to being a different type of African writer, this is coming from the child's perspective. Yeah. It's not from the, from the adult perspective. 
And that's something yeah. refreshing to see that, you know, you had never really been to Nigeria, but you were Nigerian. And, yeah, that's exactly um, it. And, you, yeah. the, your character also, you, you put that as the same way. So in yeah. your real life, do you <clears throat> feel torn still about are you Nigerian, are you American, are you Nigerian-American? Like, how do you feel now about yourself in terms of yeah. your identity? That's a great question. You know, I think, you know, this, I had this really long period where I, I wasn't sure how to answer that question. And the thing I would say today is that, you know, I am who I am, you know, which is to say that I'm, I'm all of that stuff. I am African and I am American. And, you know, the funny thing about the book is that, you know, some people consider it African fiction, which is, I think, partly because I won this African fiction prize and, um, and my work was recognized in Africa before it was recognized in America um, as a result of that prize. Um, but the thing that I would say, you know, my book is really about also it's about somebody who's trying to figure out how to become an American. You know, the, my character, like me, was born and raised in America. And that alone differentiates my book from a lot of the books that, uh, that are considered African fiction, because most often those books are about characters who are coming over to America from somewhere else. And my book is about a character who was born and raised here in America. And so I think even like critics, you know, when they initially evaluated the book, they were thinking about it in terms of like African fiction. And I thought that was interesting. I think part of the reason that happens is because, uh, again, when critics who, again, no disrespect to any critic out there, but the critic class as a whole is, again, mostly white and mostly kind of separated from the experience of many people in the diaspora. And so I think they think about our experiences in a kind of binary way, which is to say, you know, you're either from Africa coming over to America or you're an African-American. And they don't have, you know, the kind of cultural knowledge, if you will, to kind of recognize that there are people like me who slip through those cracks. And, and that's partly why I wanted to write about my experience, because I wanted to say that people like us do exist. You know, I'm born and ra- raised in America. I have a really strong connection to Nigeria because of my parents, but I also have an incredibly strong cultural connection to American African-Americans because I was born and raised here. And what does that make me? And I, I know it makes it difficult for some people to classify the book, but that's who I am and that's my experience. And that's why I wanted to write it down. So if I was cornered, I'd say I am a Nigerian-American because I think it captures both aspects of my personality. But again, I'm not even sure if that term is broad enough to kind of encompass my experience. And that's why I thought it'd be important for me to write a book about somebody from that perspective. I think now, again, going back to the youth um, artist, you are able to now be and show more of who you are authentically. Whereas, again, yeah. saying, you know, in the past, you could not say these things or people just weren't listening. And I think people are not educated yeah. enough. Like, for example, I just did a show about Tourette's and we were talking about this young lady. She hadn't been diagnosed until she was 17. You know, wow. it's like, well, why did it take so long? Because normally, based on the research, it, certain things start appearing when they're younger, like six, seven years old. Yeah. Um, we also talked about race and how that impacts diagnosis. So for writers, yeah. um, the same thing may be true. Editors are not uh, knowledgeable. They really may not yeah. be knowledgeable enough to actually evaluate your type of writing or other yeah. writings that don't fit into those little boxes, you know, the circles and squares. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the cool things you talk about in the book are memories. And yeah. it was like, when I was reading, when he had the conversation, um, there was a conversation with the brother. And he was like, you weren't here. And the brother was like, what are you talking about? I, I was there with yeah. you. 
And and then the character's like, no, you weren't there. I da 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 da. And and that like told yeah. that told, that one section just blew my mind because I had an incident with a family member where they were swearing that certain things had occurred. And yeah. I had to call my mom and I had to call my grandmother <laughs> and I was like da 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 da. And they were like, no, that's yeah. not what happened. And I called the person <laughs> back and I was like, do you know that such and such and such? And then they just got quiet. Just like your yeah. character. I, that's why I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, sorry. That was just like a really cool point. You know, what What about now your yeah. is now growing up? Are things clearer because you're an adult? Are things farther away? Have you reconciled situations? Yeah. Um, you know, memory is just so, for me, important because and memory is tied in directly to identity and identity construction. Um, you know, we are nothing more than a kind of walking stories and walking memories. The, the stories that we craft for ourselves, because we're all walking stories. You know, if, if I ask you about yourself, you tell me a story that you've likely rehearsed in your head, and that's, that's composed of memories that, about experiences you've had. I, I would do the same. And so if any of those memory links in that story begin to fray or fall apart for any reason, your identity can follow. And that's something that did happen to me, not quite in the way that it happens in the book. Now, I've had a number of experiences where my brother and I, who we went through like intense situations, will have a different memory of how something shook out. Um, so that part is accurate. But I wanted to write a story in which, um, because the, my character is growing up in such difficult circumstances and has done what a lot of people do who grow up in traumatic situations do, which is like you create these kind of memories to make your life okay to make your life acceptable in some way. And then what happens when you're confronted with that? When somebody comes to you and says, well, it didn't actually happen that way. What happens to your identity and your sense of self? Now, for some people, if you're already in a kind of fragile state, that can be enough to kind of, you know, really mess you up in a way to, to mm-hmm. make everything mm-hmm. that has made you up, all of that collapses. And if that collapses, what happens to you? Now, for my character, I think, and I don't want to give anything away, but I think that's an important thing that has to happen in order for him to get to an actual authentic sense of self. But that moment when you're going through that passage where things are falling apart around you can be incredibly trying and difficult. And so I, I just want to, with respect to me, um, you know, I, I think the thing that I was doing was that I was highlighting certain memories that would put me at ease about my sense of self. And at a certain point when I was in grad school, I just really had to strip all of that stuff away and say, okay, who am I actually? And doing that, you know, sort of going through that process also means being honest about the things that you've experienced, even if they're incredibly difficult. And um, I was, I'm really fortunate that I had the space and time to do that uh, because I think I came out on the other side of that as a, as a more kind of whole person than I was before. Well, I'm waiting for the second book. Like you just came up, you, you got to start writing the second book because I mean, there's so much again in this book. And one of the things, and, and we only have a couple seconds, but I want to talk about, you do talk about love and the love of your father yep. and the love that you yep. had in your family and the yearning for love. And um, if anybody yeah. uh, has a minute, please do pick up a particular kind of black man because this, than something you might have read. And it's not just African fiction. I didn't think that. And I thought that was weird, too. I, I didn't really think it was just African. I thought it was American. I thought it was a teenage experience. I thought so many different things. Yeah. It wasn't It wasn't just one thing. So um, I, I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time to write this book. And um, what do you think about love now? Uh, you know, I don't want to sound sappy, but love is its the most transformative force in the universe. 
love changes everything. I mean, because love demands vulnerability. It demands that you're honest with yourself. It's impossible, I think, to fall in love with someone, whether that's a partner or a child, if you're not honest about who you are and what that means to be entering that kind of relationship. And for me, that's taken on a different tenor because um, I have two kids, one who was born three months ago and a three-year-old as well. Um, And so my definition of love has expanded dramatically to encompass, you know, kind of like what it means to stay up all night, to take care of a human being, to kind of love somebody through uh, them learning about themselves and learning how to be in the world. Uh, And it's completely, and love is sacrifice as well, you know, sacrificing my time, my effort, my life really in order to help this other human being or these human beings become who they are. Um, and so the, the sacrificial part of love is essential as well. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind, even during these trying times in this country, um, the kind of idea that love is sacrifice as well. And if you're in power and you've been oppressing people for a while and you claim to love your fellow citizens, that might mean sacrificing a good measure of that power to ensure that all of us can actually live in this place together. So, yeah, for me, love is everything. And, and I knew that as I wrote the book that it would turn in a decisive way towards the transformative power of love. And in, in my book, and I'm not giving anything away when I say this, it's love that enables Tunde, my protagonist, to kind of finally arrive at a destination that's meaningful for him in terms of his life's journey. One of the things, real quick, and I know you're going to have to go, but talking about fatherhood again, we've had several fathers die in this country. And the catalyst. Yeah. For many of these marches and protests was a father yeah. on the ground dying. How do you feel about sending your kids into a world like this? We also have now people being hanged again in this world. I know. Yeah, because it's, just, of the it's color crazy. Of yeah. You know, I think that my initial impulse is to kind of, it's so interesting because I think like many Americans, I'm really kind of upset with these the stay-at-home order that is still in place here in D.C., but the flip side of that is that I kind of feel okay that I'm able to kind of keep my children close and keep them away from everything that's happening out there. But at some point they will have to leave. And, you know, I, I guess the one thing that I can do is to do what my, my, my parents did, which is to kind of insist to them that they're beautiful, that they're strong, that they're capable to allow them to know that they always have a place here to come back to if anything is going wrong out there, that a, a kind of base of safety, um, and just to empower them to, you know, ensure that they uh, maximize their intelligence, their capabilities, and, and know that they're going out there and it might be difficult, but that they're doing it for a broader cause, you know, because everything that I'm doing now is for that next generation, specifically my children, and they'll have a, a similar responsibility as well. Well, thank you for writing this book, Tope Polaran, and I'm going to be giving away copies of your book, um, and I appreciate you if you could write the second one soon, Beth, and then come back on the show, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you for your excellent Thank questions. You. I really, really appreciated this. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Have a great weekend. Stay safe and stay healthy, okay? You as well. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you Bye. so much, everybody, for tuning in. I am just getting off the phone with, I don't know, you have to read the book to see maybe – who he is as a person. He's an American. He's a Nigerian. He's a father. He's a lover, if you will. Um, He's an artist, and um, he has important things to say that will, I think, open your eyes maybe to some of your memories um, and who you are. I'm going to give away copies, so follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday mornings with Joy Keys. 
and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I uh, hope you guys are staying safe. Remember to wash your hands a lot and um, wear your mask because you don't want to be uh, not be able to get into the CVS. <laughs> All right, take it easy and have a great weekend. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.